In a world. Mate, hold up. We said we're done with the serious intros. Who said? Well, we did. I don't remember that. Well, I said it, and you're me, so, you know. Well, I don't care. In a world. Uh, hey, I told you. We're keeping it light. You do it on your own, then. Well, technically, I already am, so. Anyway, fuck yeah. Pure wild flight. Get it down, ya. How good? Visit nzaerosports.com. I get to do the next one. Well, obviously you moron, we both do. I was 19, broke, unemployed, and sold my girlfriend's canopy for drug money. So, I thought I better sew her a new one. What a sentence, and what a story. This describes the humble yet outrageous beginnings of NZ Aerosports, the home of Icarus Canopies, in the words of our founder himself. From getting a paratrooper toy from his mom, Watching parachutes at the DZ as a six-year-old, jumping off the wharf with a parachute made from bedsheets, doing his first jump at 16, sewing his first canopy on a borrowed machine at 19, and starting to sell parachutes out of a garage in 1986, Paul Gyro Martin had an undying love for the sky. Our company started with one man with the wildest of spirits in a true blue sky dream, a renegade. In the time that Gyro created and ran the Icarus Canopies brand until he passed away in 2017, he pushed everything he had to its limits. We miss him and we always will. Gyro is the next generation of NZ Aerosports. It honors our founder, of course, because it was the name we all knew him by, but Gyro the rebrand also marks the start of a new chapter, our next jump. Gyro is the space between sound and silence, art and science, chaos and calm. Gyro is a state of epic tranquility that transcends understanding. That moment, in the door, in free fall, mid-swoop, where nothing but the present exists. A perfect balance of euphoria and thrill. Gyro captures our passion for flying and our commitment to designing break-the-fucking-rules canopies that deliver pilots pure, wild flight. Coming straight from the cockpit, it's another episode of Lunatic Fringe with the fucking pilot. Ready, set, go! Back in the can for another edition of Lunatic Fringe Into the Void and a smiling face on the other side of the screen. So let's get into it. Tell me, who the fuck are you and what do you do? Hi, I'm Bob Lewis. I'm a skydiver and a writer and historian of, of the sport of parachuting, mainly skydiving in the history of skydiving i'm currently right now helping to develop the uh two displays the upcoming international skydiving museum uh the development stage and then the barnstorming era and uh that's quite exciting i've got two books that i've finished and uh working on three more in that series and then have ideas for quite a few oh my more. so, so you're keeping busy you're a busy guy. Now, here, I, I want you to explain, because I got to know right off the bat, your nickname is Mardi Gras Bob. Yeah, it hasn't been used in a while, but yeah, that's some of my older friends do remember me as Mardi Gras Bob during the 90s. Um, 
going to Quincy and World Freefall conventions, those kind of things, uh, was known for some kind of wild behavior. I mean, and, and being from New Orleans, that and a, and the colors of my canopy just made me Mardi Gras Bob. Uh, some kids actually named me the Mardi Gras Man at a boogie and that kind of stuff. So. Well, it's not a bad nickname to have, though. <laughs> Although, no, and then the colors, I still fly the same colors, the purple, green, and gold on my canopy. Nice. And, uh, and that's what makes makes for when I jump places that people are that are from New Orleans or understand Mardi Gras do somewhat, some often come to me and want to ask. Sure. So it gives an opening conversation. So now, I mean, obviously you've got your foot deep into the history of skydiving and have been a part of quite a lot of skydiving, but how did you get your start in jumping out of airplanes? Well, it's funny. My dad, um, I guess you could say was a war hero. He got the, uh, the, um, distinguished flying cross in World War II was shot down over Yugoslavia and evaded and was able to return back to the States and then wow. continued flying. And I remember as a kid, he never talked much about the war, but I remember as a kid asking him, dad, what was it like to, when your parachute opened, he, his joke was son, you ever had your ass shanked up between your ears. <laughs> and, uh, so that was what I remembered. And, uh, I had a good friend, Tommy Bienvenue, who was an early base jumper, um, a lot of the illegal jumps uh, buildings in New Orleans and New York and those kind of things. And he jumped the North Pole in so many places. And he was always showing me his photo album. And I, I said, please, you know, introduce me to skydiving. We'd work together as, as disc jockeys at the radio station. And he finally connected me up with a guy named Paul Kozik. And I went over to Gold Coast Skydiving, Mike Igo's place. And um, did my did a tandem first off, um, no video because I didn't want a video of a 200 pound military guy strapped to my butt. So anyway, <laughs> um, but we, as soon as the jump was over, we went to uh, we went out to eat. Typical skydiver spread where we just took over the restaurant and pushed all the tables together. And and as I'm sitting there, I'm looking around, going, "This is what I've been looking for my whole life." This is. Yep. And I mentioned it to a guy named Ron Walker, a good friend of mine, and who trained me at the time. I said, you know, it's weird. It's like a mix between hippies and military. And <laughs> at the time, I didn't realize how profound of an observation that was. And him being the ultimate hippie at the time was also a golden a golden knight. And as my history, as I went into history, I found out that he there was a picture of him with Tiny Broadwick uh, at her visit to um to Fort, uh, Fort Benning, I think it was, or it might have been Fort Bragg. And I was like, that's Ron Walker. I was like, golly. And, you know, <laughs> so anyway, that, that's how I got started. It was amazing. I got in with the right people at the right time when I felt like, and sure. I just loved it and um, got 200 jumps before I even got my USPA license <laughs> I, and I needed it to go. Sure. Well, that was that. You know, it's it's funny that you uh, you say you went to dinner that first time out, and and as typical skydivers, they just took the place over and smashed all the tables together. And it's so funny because that paints such vivid memories of my own time in the sport. Because you're exactly right. I can't remember how many times I sat in a restaurant and at some point during a dinner looked around and went fucking hell it's just us we took this place over and ran everybody else out <laughs> yeah and most and i've noticed most of the time restaurants don't mind a bit you know they, it seems like you, they'd be concerned about a bunch of skydivers in there but it, 
it's it's just the whole vibe that it's yeah. like they're glad to have us they they know we're we're eating our eating and drinking filling up our bills and they'll they're hoping for a big tip and skydivers typically you know are generous to the, i noticed to the service people wherever they sure. go because they travel sure so much they have to. well and i'm so yeah it was great and like i said i knew where i wanted to be right then i was like this is this is what i've been searching for well, and I'm, I'm sure you've noticed the same thing on on more than one occasion on one of those dinner nights out. We would suck the general public into our group because we were having so much fun and it was clearly such an infectious vibe. And next thing you know, the three guys that you met at dinner or the two girls that you met at dinner the night before are out at the drop zone jumping the next day. Yeah, I, I haven't ran into that too much because it seems to me when I try to, I guess I get enthusiastic about skydiving and and I see they kind of glaze over and, and I'm thinking, like, doesn't everybody want to jump out of airplanes? And it took me a while to realize, no, not everybody really wants to. You know, I thought that's just you're just afraid of why you don't want to. But, yeah, some just don't want to. But, sure. Yeah. A, um, a wedding, a skydiver wedding that I went to in Kansas City um, had an hour or two to kill before uh, before the um uh, whatever it was the original it wasn't the wedding but the pre-meeting or whatever it was mm. get together beforehand there was a bar nearby the church and i went into the bar and ran into an air trash buddy of mine and he immediately recognized me and we ended up taking over the bar we had a, a bartender a lady bartender that i can't remember the tats that she had but it was she had tats right on the palms of her hand and they loved us but then you could see a few of the guy, business guys over there were <laughs> little drunk and wondering who are these crazy skydivers and what the hell's going on. So yeah, we and we made friends like uh one of the guys there was just a, an ordinary ordinary Joe, but just fell in love with us. And next thing you know, he was kind of like, you know, wouldn't say honor or air trash, but he was he was well on his way to making himself one. Oh, that's and fantastic. So yeah, I, I get it. Now yeah, uh, you, it's funny. Go ahead, go ahead. It, you, please. It's funny that people will come up to a sky come up to skydivers and just start carrying on conversations, you know, like they've known us our whole life or it's just like we're family or something. It, it's neat. It really is. And I enjoy it. It uh, you're right. It, it breeds a familiarity with people on a very, very quick basis, especially if you're obviously if you're taking a, a first time tandem suit or something like that, you tend to bond quite quickly. But you're right. Even in the general public, it's amazing how quickly you can just get everybody just gelled together. It's a lot of fun. It really is. I, I enjoy the sport. I love going places. And the, the old joke, and I'm sure you've heard it, is how do you know a skydiver when you first meet one? He'll tell you. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And he's probably standing next to the pilot that's busy telling everybody else. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Only, yes. The old joke. What is it? Uh, what is the difference between God and the pilot? God doesn't think he can fly an airplane. Yep. 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 Now you, you had mentioned um, that uh, when you were starting out jumping, you were, uh, you said you were a, a DJ, a, a radio DJ. Well, yeah, I, always in electronics and uh i got it it was funny that one summer um a, a girlfriend of mine her girlfriend was dating the head of programming for a rock and roll station there on in the gulf coast down there on in bluff in gulfport mississippi and um and i had done ham radio work and that kind of stuff so i thought i had a voice for it and so uh he said look we got we need somebody to do uh what is it six to midnight on 
on Sunday night or something, you want to come down and give it a shot. And, uh, oh, I was frozen stiff. Uh, it was actually I had someone call up one time and say, you must be new. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they go, well, you can tell. But then after a while it, it got on and I got to, I, they gave me the spots. A lot of the DJs didn't want, which was like six to midnight on Saturday, Friday and Saturday nights, which was fine with me because, um, I didn't really start partying until 10 o'clock anyway. Sure. You know, so the idea of getting off work at midnight was, was like perfect. You know, I'm <laughs> when I go out to the clubs, everybody else will be half blasted and I'm just getting started. Yeah. So it was, <laughs> it was great. And, and, and I loved it. I took kind of a NPR kind of voice idea to it. Instead of being the loud, crazy DJ, sure. I was kind of a laid back and, and would sneak into the program director's office from time to time and, and snatch records and and play them what they call breaking format is i don't know how many people realize that the songs you hear on the radio are or at least back then were paid for sure you couldn't pay you couldn't play songs that you weren't paying to play and um or had some kind of agreement for the rights it's you know it's kind of like the internet now you, you have to be careful what you publish sure but i would just grab a record and it's like you know it's green grass and high tides for 30 minutes you know and i'll sneak <laughs> outside so people i ended up not too well liked by some of the the stiffer necks there at the radio station but the the general public you know knew who i was and it, it saved me quite often out partying when you know we get into a sticky situation so we'd say oh no that's you know that's Bob Lewis. Don't mess with him. <laughs> isn't that the way it goes though i mean obviously you've got the status quo and people that don't like it when you start doing things a little bit different but i mean that makes you fit right in in our community real well <laughs> it, it did that's why i, I knew who, where i was when i when i got around skydivers i was like yep i recognize this i thought i was the weird one but maybe there's a whole group of us out there for sure. Now, uh, you said that uh, you worked towards You only got your USPA license so that you could get to Quincy. So you knew from the get-go what kind of community was out there for you in skydiving. Um, immediately. Um, like I said, um, Mike Igo, um, uh, uh, Ron Walker. Um, uh, oh, goodness. Give me a few seconds. But anyway, some of those, all those guys I just fell in love with immediately uh, david lane he he was one of the coolest and um his son was on the on the was killed james lane was one of the guys killed in the paris crash yeah and um uh, and that happened while i was with david down there and um or training with him down there so yeah all those guys were just i mean i just immediately fell in love with them and didn't realize that they were actually really the core skydivers um you know um I look back at it and it seems so obvious that these guys were, you know, somebody in the sport or not, somebody's not the right way, but really uh, the essence of the sport, if you will. Sure. And, and I, and I sensed that the essence is what I was after. And uh, so I love these guys and just had so much fun and they had so much fun with me. And I was a poor skydiver to begin with falling off the steps and, you know, <laughs> bag coming between my legs and, that kind of thing. And uh, they would actually, Mike Igo would round up the guys to watch me land because they would always know there'd be a spectacular, you know, Biffin landing somewhere in the 
and the thing and if i stood up if i stood it up there'd be a, you know the whole airport would cheers <laughs> that's when you know something's going on is when the crowd is uh this is before swooping and the crowd's coming out to watch you land <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they they weren't doing it to see the skill it, you know they were just for the entertainment value yeah. well yeah. so so I mean to 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 be at a time when stuff like Quincy is going off and and you've got this core group of people that are out there doing the jumping. I mean, yeah, it sounds to me like you knew what an amazing time you were living in. Well, you know, it's funny. Went went to Quincy the first first time I went, I was just totally flabbergasted. I mean, just in awe. I remember. Well, it didn't happen just the first time. It happened every time. <laughs> I'd be sitting in my tent, giggling like an idiot, like I'd lost my mind. You know, the evening just going over everything that happened, just hysterical giggles. Yeah. And um, it was like that. So the second year, it might have been the second year that I went. Um, I had, was making a little bit of money at the time, and they were auctioning off. I, I guess they were this, they were sponsoring or helping the local ASPCA that year. And so my understanding is all the vendors have to donate something to the cause, and then they have an auction. So I was trying to get, um, well, was it Mike Mullins King ear? Ah. Uh, there, that was one of the, one of the auctions, a whole load. And, uh, I, it went too high. I didn't get it. But the next morning I ended up waking up in my tent with a full load for an otter from uh, Carolina sky sports. <laughs> and so I talked to my friends and they go, how much did it cost? You? I said, like 250 bucks. I was like, that's like 10, 10, 11 bucks. A, uh, a slot. I said, I could let my friends all jump for 10 bucks a slot. Nah. I went to the manifest microphone. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's connected through the whole airport, all the backing areas and all the, where all the planes are. It's just loudspeakers and FM radio everywhere. And I, I announced the first annual Mardi Gras, Bob half naked skydive. <laughs> and the rules were you, you didn't, you could, you could just be half naked. It didn't matter. Top, bottom, left, right. Uh, but if you were half naked, you could get a free skydive. And uh, I thought it was kind of risque even at the time that I might catch some shit for it, but I didn't. Um, actually, um, uh, 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 the beard. Um, uh, oh, Bill. Bill Luth was um, <laughs> was there packing like he did on the grass in the main area there. And I hear him go, I don't know who that Mardi Gras Bob guy is, but man, he's really a skydiver. You know, and I was like, I'm not quite sure who this Bill Booth guy is over here, but I know he's important. And you know, at the time, I had no idea how influential he was and just the right. design of the rig I was wearing. Um, but the fact that he liked me and um, just meant something. And then I got a full load. Um, had one lady, good friend, ended up being a good friend. Says, Bob, I've got a girl, a redhead. She's a woofo, though. She'll do a tandem, and I can get a tandem master. You know, she, but he's a guy, but she'll go completely naked. I was like, <laughs> well, that, that, I think that'll work. So we ended up with a full load, and I was in my just in cut off blue jeans and Tevas, I think. And we never saw each other after the exit because no, no cloth, obviously, slowing anybody down. So everybody sure. went everywhere. <laughs> and so that became kind of a yearly thing and and I and I liked it. But then, you know, had to, you know, got older and can't 
I'm too old to be doing getting naked, half naked young girls on an airplane. I guess. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's, it's uh, environment. It, it's funny. The yeah, the the environment in skydiving has definitely changed. It's turned from more uh, from what was a lot, like you said, a bit of a half hippie, half military, almost commune kind of vibe into a proper no shit sport. I mean, it's it's different. Yeah. A lot, you know, I, maybe, you know, it's get, the getting older thing. And, you know, I try not to be like the grouchy uncle kind of guy who, back in my day, you know, <laughs> but it does, it does, it does seem that uh, the sport now is less, has less camaraderie, at least as a whole. It seems like certain groups group together and they're not being rude or snobbish to the other groups. They're just, not paying any attention to it. sure Did I lose you no 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 yeah no and okay. i i i completely That's agree you with you i think uh, um i think you're right in that it's a bit more um segmented um because there's such clear divides between some of the disciplines that are happening now they don't tend to tend to blend together so much but and i'm sure you're the same in that i see that drop zones still have that camaraderie but you're right as a as a sport in the whole it seems that it's it's uh, spread out quite a bit yeah and then and then i'm clouding my judgment on the fact that i've been jumping in places like paris and those kind of things where it is you know has a professional vibe um, to it as opposed to drop zones like gold coast or places like that where it's just you know who showed up today let's get something together let's have some fun and then you know let's party tonight and do it sure. again tomorrow you know as opposed to six o'clock in the morning at the tunnel for three hours you know jump 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 two rigs re you know constant take a 20 minute debrief maybe a, a quick lunch and then do it again until five and then tunnel until eight or nine Sure. You know, those people don't have time for a social life. They're just too busy being professionals and working towards the golden apple. Sure. And I mean, I, I suppose it's take what you want out of the sport, right? I mean, uh, you still have the opportunity to do either or, and you can definitely do your thing. And I've been lucky enough to work at both types of drop zones because I worked at Cross Keys, which was the epitome of the the biggest holy shit party drop zone I've ever been in. And then gone from that and a bunch of years later, flying for Skydive Dubai, which is the cookie cutter corporate skydive vibe nowadays so uh not to say that it's not fun but it's just very very different and i get it and i miss the old i miss the old we call it the old style i miss more wide open fun type drop zones where you can do horny gorillas or tubes or whatever you want to do as opposed to you know serious point turning or or whatever you know sure where everybody's so concerned that everything's perfect yeah, no, I agree. Which, well, you know, I, I learn as much from mistakes as I do from success. So oh, more so, more so, I think. And I, I don't know. I mean, yes. I, I, I guess I'm a bit of an old timer now as well. I've been in it 28 years and, and uh, the, the party drop zones are the ones that I look back with the most fondness and they were certainly the wildest and craziest. Um, but I learned a lot and, and had that camaraderie that you speak of that'll last me the rest of my life. I mean, right. That's a community that I'll have forever. Yeah. Skydiving is so cool. You could jump one time with someone um, just have one afternoon with them 
and 20 years later, you're still remembering him as, as a great friend. Absolutely. Like spent, what, 20 minutes on the ground with a guy and three minutes in the air, you know? But he's your buddy for life, or she's your buddy for life, or sure. whatever. Well, that's one of the things that I love about the sport, right? I mean, you and I had never met before, and it was just through a random Facebook posts and following some of the stuff that you've put out there that spurred me on to go, I fucking want to talk to Bob on the podcast, especially because of your interest in the history and skydiving. And I found, especially when I first began the podcast and nobody knew who the hell I was or what I was doing, just the fact that I was a skydiver wanting to talk about jumping was enough for some jumpers to go fuck yeah i'm in i'll do it i was as soon as you you had approached me i was like yes absolutely and i hadn't you know i don't think i'd seen many of your podcasts uh, i enjoyed the one uh God, what was it on um uh, was a lady skydiver just the other day that i was uh, vanessa vanessa yes oh yes and oh i fell in love with her the first time i saw her up in chicago she uh, was rocking the mohawk yep. at that time and when I found out she was, um, her specialty was in um, brain physics, I guess yeah. it was. Or, oh, yeah. She's, you know, I mean, uh, it's, I mean, a full-blown hardcore neurologist. And and uh, one of my favorite things, and, and we had talked uh, pre-podcast that uh, my podcast tends to be a bit free-flowing. And it's, it's as much about the person as it is the sport. And it's people like her that make it so interesting because- you would never think that the wild and crazy girl that's hooting and hollering and sporting the mohawk to go jump out of an airplane is a full-blown fucking neurologist that's like doing some amazing things and it's so cool. Right. But that's what's so cool about our sport is you do not know. You'll you'll find an old packer who, you know, just smells horrible and is working <laughs> his butt off, but then he's reading the works of Plato up between the jumps. Yes. You know, or, or, you know, or you got neurologists, you've got doctors, lawyers, and, and just, you know, people who have dropped out and they're doing whatever they can to be able to pay for jump tickets, whether it's cleaning toilets at the drop zone or, or learning how to rig or whatever. It is. Sure. Now, had you worked in the sport? Were you doing something other than jumping and jumping for fun or? No, I was an electronics guy. I always have been uh, radar in the military and then had a few businesses, car stereo right out of the military, had a car stereo installation business, and then later did electronic repair and then found that TV repair paid, <laughs> paid ridiculous amounts of money. And so I did that for quite a few years. And uh, then um, and basically spent it all skydiving. I mean, once I started jumping, um, I had a 79 Trans Am that, went by the wayside so i could buy a new rig yeah i do miss it but i still have that rig and i probably wouldn't have had that, still have that car so anyway yeah I, I just fell in love with the sport and spent every cent i had on it but never felt bad it's you know the old joke is how much is that steak dinner over there well that's a couple of skydives so yeah you know i think i'll go have a po' boy sandwich over here and save you know i have more money to jump tomorrow yeah, that was one of my favorite old jo oh, jokes was, how do you make a small fortune skydiving? You start with a big one. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, I, I got off I got off the question. But, I, yeah, I when I first started skydiving, um, you know, I'd, I'd always been – my jobs had always been something that I loved. You know, whatever it was, electronics or whatever. I, I never felt like I was working. You know, there was a few jobs, of course, you know, as a kid. 
you know, the paper out, that kind of thing, where, you know, you're really, you know, it's a job. Sure. Work. And if you could not do it, you wouldn't, but you did it for the money. But uh, most of the time I did, I did electronics and I enjoyed it. Car stereo was just my life and all that. Then the radio DJ job was funny that I didn't even pick up those paychecks because hey. when the checks would come in, they'd be sitting there in the desk. And I didn't work until the next following weekend. So I was like, <laughs> you're going to pick up your check? I'll get it when I, you don't care about money. I was like, well, no, you weren't. The DJ wasn't paying that much. And at the time I was, you know, money was not a problem. Sure. But um, anyway, I, I did not want a job that I didn't like. And I loved skydiving. And I felt that if I got a job um, skydiving, that um, I would end up hating it. Sure. Sure. Uh, and uh well i mean that's I, you know so anyway yeah so i didn't, I didn't do anything i didn't pack i didn't do, didn't try to become an aff or a tandem instructor not sure. even a coach or anything like that you know, i was there to jump with folks but i didn't want it to be my job which is honestly and, and, and i never mean, really had them. i mean i don't I, I look back at my time working as a full-time skydiver and i have zero regrets for doing it but i can also acknowledge the fact that i gave up um, some of the, not the passion in the sport, but I gave up opportunities to have a whole lot of fun in the sport because I was working in it. So it was definitely a trade-off. Well, yeah, there, there's a trade-off to go, to kind of circle back around. One of the ladies that was on my first Mardi Gras, Bob half naked jump. She later became, uh, came out to Paris and started doing tandems. And I was out there, actually was working in the <laughs> but I actually did take a job at Paris there for a little while doing chief of maintenance out there when the, one of the guys went away. So, but anyway, I was watching this, this girl, and I won't mention her name because she will, she, she threatened me with exposing that picture if I ever showed that picture of the jump. But anyway, I would watch her land, run across the packing area, or run across the, the drop, run across the runway go over to the school, grab a new student and a new rig and head out to the, and she did that 10, 12 times a day, every day. I'm yep. sure she had it off, but it sure didn't look like it. And so then she ended up later becoming videographer for the world events, the, um, the world record jump in Thailand. Um, and is just so well known in the sport. Now part of the, um, Part of the highlight skydiving team, which sure. is the all women skydiving team. And so she still looks at me with a kind of a jaundice eye, wondering, you know, if I'm still the Mardi Gras Bob from 25, 30 years ago. <laughs> of but course. Anyway, yeah. So she, to round it back around to, to not drag us out too far, she she was just the opposite. She, she when she did the Mardi Gras Bob jump, she had didn't, I don't think she had a B license probably. She was just new. Um, very uncertain, very uncomfortable around people. And, um, you know, 10, 15 years later, she's Hall of Fame quality skydiver. Oh, yeah. And just amazed me. And she, so she did the opposite. She got into the sport and worked, worked, worked her butt off. Like, and working for the Canatchers, I love the Canatchers, but they will let you work yourself to death. <laughs> if you want to try to get to the top of the heap, they're not going to stop you. Yep. You know, and, um, and that's not a bad thing. They, that's why there are so many talented people that come through that place. Sure. Because they know that's the top of the, one of the tops of the, one of the heaps and you want to yeah. get to the top of it. 
Oh yeah. And she certainly did. And, uh, and I, you know, I had regrets, but at the same time, I didn't have the work ethic that was required. There's no way I was going to make 10 tandems a day. You know, oh, it, just, it, it got to be downright brutal. And, and I was, I was a meat hauler, man. I, I was doing hardcore tandem stuff, especially the cross keys days, which I've talked about at length on this podcast, but at its peak in cross keys, Saturdays and Sundays, the tandem instructors would do 25 tandems a day. Uh, and it was, it was at next level, you know, you're living off a of Red Bull and Snickers bars for two days. Um, and <laughs> It, not a healthy way to do things, <laughs> you know. I have great yeah. experience, and and uh, you, man, you talk about bonding with your coworkers when you're, you know, going through that kind of uh, environment day after day. You bond really, really quickly. Yeah, but and, and it, it's like any kind of stressful situation too, or where you you don't have time to think about your behavior. People's true character does come out quite often. Oh man, and, and you'll see that. Oh yeah, probably seen it more than I have. Where people will come in, I'm the greatest. Look out, elbow on their way to the top, and they realize that you know they can't take the the rejection or the failure or whatever, and they end up burning out. Whereas you got the other ones who you don't really notice them. They show up there, they do their job. They're kind of quiet, and 20 years later, they're still there doing their job. Yeah, yeah. And and you realize, man, that's one of the best photographers, best tandem guys, whatever. You know, the Jim Wallace's of the community you know the unsung heroes that just do the work man i mean that are literally introducing tens of thousands of people to the sport and you know they're the ambassadors to the sport even though we know what they're like at the tiki bar at three o'clock on a saturday morning (laughs) (laughs) that's all too true you know and you know that in skydiving it, it doesn't matter what you do for a living it really doesn't matter your politics or ethnicity anything are you going to be in the slot when I come down there or yep. are you going to go low? That's yep. all. I mean, it seems like skydivers dislike somebody who goes low, at least in the, the FS community, somebody who goes low more than they do somebody who, let's say, pisses on the toilet seat. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's it's kind of funny because you look back at like the the movies that got me uh, initially involved in, in skydiving. Point Break, of course, was the big one for a lot of people, specifically for me. But so was the movie Drop Zone. With Wesley Snipes, and- I love Robson. I love that. I did absolutely. Love that. Uh, you know what was his name? Swoop. Swoop. Yeah. And so Swoop I remember watching that character. Went, and I wasn't a skydiver, and I remember seeing the movie and thinking, "What a ridiculous character that was!" That fuck, please. That's just over the top. And then, of course, I became a skydiver and went, "Oh fuck, I know like thirty swoops." <laughs> yeah. If, if he hasn't jumped with you, he won't talk to you. He yeah. won't. There's there's people that aren't too far from that. <laughs> yeah, it, really, it really is. And uh, you see that. I got that way. You know, got a little bit of island fever where, you know, you end up, only people you can really trust are the skydivers. It's yes. not like, you know, all the rest are just ground, grubbing ground dwellers. You know, yeah. With their, all their drama. Yes, exactly. I but, mean, we had skydivers have drama more than most ground dwellers. And- sure, but it's different kind of fun drama, right? It's not real world drama. <laughs> so, what got you no, interested? It's, it, but it's it's kind of funny that you know what I do. I get go ahead. No, I was just going to say, what got you interested uh, uh, and I so aimed towards... No, no, it's okay. Uh, so aimed towards the history of skydiving because you've really taken up that uh, that moniker and really are, are trying to preserve it. 
Yeah, and and it's it it's surprising. I think I'm more surprised than anybody. Some of the best compliments I get are from my old old friends who knew me, you know, twenty something years ago, and they they'll say something like, "Bob, I never really realized how good you were at that." <laughs> you know, and I'm wow, thank you. You know, yeah. I, you know, to because I do come across quite a bit as a flake and a fun loving kind of guy. And, Maybe not the best educated, but uh, when I get put pen to paper, if you will, it turns out pretty well. And I've surprised myself. And um, the fact that the International Skydiving Museum has dieted to put me or have me help, I guess would be the best way to describe it, put together the discovery and barnstorming eras for the for the display. And we actually got a, a big Zoom meeting tomorrow with the with the designers. Mm. Got all the research in. Now we just got to figure out how to pick and choose what's going to be used and how they're going to display it and that kind of thing. But to answer your question, how I really got into it, I guess, was um, just, I hate to admit it, but it was kind of like Facebook. Um, I People were posting pictures, and this gentleman by the name of Bill Roby posted a picture of Tiny Broadwick. And I knew a little bit about who the first, our first lady of parachuting was. And so I dug out a picture that I had found and posted it. And he answered back and said, that's not Tiny Broadwick. He says, it's a really good picture recreation, but that's not Tiny. Mm. And I'm like, who is this bozo <laughs> arguing to me on Facebook, you know? So I went and found um, uh, uh, Dan. Um, or um, Anyway, I, uh, his name is slipping to me right now, but he was the head of the museum. He was the curator of the museum. At the time, and I found a PowerPoint that he had done on Tiny, and it had that picture in it, the one that I had posted that he said was not Tiny. And so I sent him that, and then I found some other references, and I figured if I send you three references, I win my case of beer. And right. I told him it was a case of beer bet. Well, this guy was friends of the of Tiny Broadwick's biographer. He'd gone to school with her. Okay. He told me he knew Tiny Broadwick better than he knew his own mother. It would be like me trying to present a picture of his mother that wasn't him, wasn't her, and trying to pass her off. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't care who you are or how long you've been around. Prove it to me. Well, he did. It turned out it was an Ethel Knudsen who took up Tiny's moniker and her act after Tiny separated from Broadwick. Mm. And then she only lived about a year or so, and she was killed in a parachuting accident. Uh, and uh, so that was it. But there, there's a picture of this beautiful, long-haired girl purported by Getty Images and so many other places to be Tiny Broadwick, that it, and it's not. And mm. so what that did, me trying to pill, prove Bill Roby wrong, caused me to become an expert on Tiny Broadwick. Right. I mean, there's not a picture out there that I have not seen. Uh, I got to end up, Bill Roby turned me on to Elizabeth Robertson, who is the, was the biographer. Uh, we spent a lot of time on the phone. Um, she sent me a pile of her books autographed, and I took them to the museum and did a talk on Tiny Broadwick, and then the books were there presented to people who wanted them, donations going to the museum. So that all worked out well. Um, and then I ended up meeting Tiny Broadwick's great-grandchildren who knew her. They sat at her feet as she told would drink scotch and tell them the stories <laughs> of her jumps. And uh, so I was able to get my hands on the uh, her original scrapbook, all the clippings from 
the 1900s, 1910s, um, pictures with, um, with, uh, Glenn Curtis, Glenn Martin, uh, her, her mentioning talking to, I guess it would be Orville, right? Um, and then, um, uh, and Orville Wright mentioned to her, I'm glad you're interested in aviation. And she says, well, I'm mainly interested in parachutes. Because, <laughs> you know, she had been doing jumps 10 years before the, the uh, or quite a few years, I would say 10 years, but five or six years before the Wrights took to the air. So. Sure. Uh, so then that ended up doing it. Then I started just more stories of the women in parachuting. And I got enough of the stories together to do a book that, um, it only went to 1942. It just basically covered the ballooning era. Sure. You know, from the first jump in 1799 <laughs> by a woman. First jump by a woman in 1799. Her husband had made the first parachute jump or first free flying parachute jump um, just two years before. And she had been in the crowd and typical skydiver type of story. She went up to him and said, I want to be your student. And he trained her, married her, and put her out two years later. And so she ended up being the first lady to jump. And so that was in 1799. Um, and so they, so I just kept doing the history. And and I decided to end that era with the development of the silk parachute. Because mm. uh, as war was coming, Japan had all the silk. Obviously, they weren't going to give us any. And cotton wasn't going to work. So DuPont developed the silk for the stockings. And then and they went and uh created an offshoot of a parachute created an offshoot of parachute company mm. and um and a soap company and ended up uh anyway i'm confusing you but they ended up uh hiring this woman or having this woman that was in their employ and she ended up doing the first parachute jump of a nylon parachute um adeline gray was her name she was a oh, regger wow. um she had like 30 jumps prior to that so once she <laughs> When she did that, that's figure. Well, that's 1942. That's the end of the beginning. If you sure. Know. And uh, then we got the war, and um, you know, the war made a big difference. Um, just like World War One made such a big difference in in airplanes. Sure. Uh, World War Two really made a big difference in parachutes, and of course airplanes. And then the funny thing about studying all this history, I find out that from the very beginning, all these people are connector connector linked together. Mm. It's like one person would not have existed. Like Charles Broad, Tiny Broadwick would not have existed without Charles Broadwick. Um, Charles Broadwick wouldn't have um, began um, his career without Tom Tom Baldwin, who was the first man, first American to do a parachute jump mm. in eighteen eighty eight. Uh, in, in first American to do American a jump in America. Sure, and then uh, he learned his jumping. Um, from Van Tassel or ballooning from Van, a guy named Van Tassel, who is the gentleman I talked about earlier, who had the Freitas sisters she sure. took to Australia and, and um, caused all <laughs> kinds of havoc with these scantily clad skydivers leaping from balloons. <laughs> so it's funny, it's all tied together. And then Irwin, who the military parachute got a lot of his designs from, from uh, Baldwin or from from uh broadwick uh who uh was somewhat of a scoundrel so he i think he was afraid to go put his name that much public so he ended up giving or selling whatever letting martin let martin have the 
the patent for the lifesaver vest. Oh, wow. The, the first, if you will, parachute rig. And so then, you know, uh, that can, continues to this day. Um, so it's the, what I'm trying to get at is the, from the very beginning, from 1799 all the way through to today, there's a connection. Sure. It might be small, but there's a definite connection between all the parachutists, balloonists who, who got developed our sport. You know, uh, Bill Booth, I mean, his he completely revolutionized our equipment. Um, but prior to him, that equipment was basically what uh, Floyd and Irwin had created back in the 40s. And that was stuff based on uh, Curtis, who based all or Martin, I'm sorry, who based all his stuff on on Broadwick, who God knows where he learned it all, but from 10 or 20 years of carnival parachuting, he learned what was safe and what wasn't. And, well, I mean, uh, yeah, that's, that's, wives in the process. that's one of the cool things about the, the, the size of our sport and that relatively speaking, it's a pretty small sport is you can't trace it back all the way. And it's such a, a, you know, slim degree of separation between the beginning and what's going on now. And to be able to trace that is magnificent because I mean, a lot of us take incredible pride in our sport, but we don't necessarily know a lot about the history of our sport. But if you start to dig into it, you realize we come from a history of a bunch of badasses. Really do. I, um, I found a book, um, called um long lonely leap and um i it was about joe kittinger mm. who in his 1960 parachute jump from 108 102,800 feet and uh i found the book and i was like this it was considered the holy grail of aviation collectibles so i went ahead and bought it and then i went out to mesquite where i was jumping at at the time and uh showed the book to a bunch of people said look i'm going to the this, there's a skydiving museum and they're having a, a get together this next month and I'm bringing this book and Joe Kittinger is going to be there and I'm going to get him to sign it. Mm. It was like crickets. It was like nobody cared. You know, I, maybe I'm exaggerating, but I really felt bad that like, am I the only one who cares about <laughs> Joe Kittinger? Am I the only one that cares about history of the sport? And then this little big girl about i'm guessing maybe 12 11 kittinger my teacher told me it's kittinger everybody calls it kittinger and so i was like this little girl knows more about the history of the sport than any of these skydivers here All right and and so the first so when i finally got to talk to sherry kittinger um actually emailed her i asked her, how is her husband's name pronounced and she wrote back for R. So no, it's still people call him Kittinger. Sure. Even at his weight that they had just a a month or so back, you know, several people call him Kittinger. Sure. But some of them were Kittinger or Kittinger. Sure. But he didn't seem to care. So there are little <laughs> history tidbits that I love. Yeah, for sure. Well, and it's that fun little stuff that kind of just gives it gives life to all the stories that a lot of skydivers have kind of heard a little bit about, but they might not know the details. And those details are a lot of fun. 
they, they really are. I, I catch myself, um, you know, I get a real high from some of this stuff. Um, you know, it was just the other day. I don't recall exactly who the person was. I ended up having to send emails to myself so that I won't forget. I'll run across. I'm researching one thing and run across someone else. Sure. And I really don't have a half hour, 45 minutes to go down that rabbit hole. So I just send it email it to myself and then later when i have time oh that's an interesting story that's a good way to go now every time i find um and um jump the less Irwin um ripcord story so the sorry i think we're no no we're good okay um but um oh god Lost, lost my train of thought there, but um, well, so you were talking anyway. about the, the some of the different stories and the and the history involved, and I know that you've had a chance to write not one but two books now, uh, and you're right. you're and you're writing a full series on them. I mean, there's an extensive amount of history to be covered in the sport. Yeah, and it's funny that uh, the history becomes almost obsolete the second the thing goes to press because uh, well. Uh, the, I know what I was getting on the the tiny Broadway thing. I had to actually rewrite that chapter right before um, the book went to press, and then right after it went to press, I found another skydiver or two. And then just when I'm researching this Van Tassel story, I found a critical error in one of my book, in my chapter, whereas I identified this woman as I mentioned the, the confusion. Sure. I did talk about the confusion, but I was under the understanding that Van Tassel's first wife was uh, a girl by the name of Jean, and that his final wife was also one by the name of Jean, and I didn't think they were the same Jean. Well, it turned out that his first wife was actually a Clara Corkenda, and I'm not hmm. 100% sure that that was actually factual truth, <laughs> too, because he had two wives prior to her. And then once he started touring Hawaii and Australia and jumping with scantily clad <laughs> skydivers, he she divorced him, and I haven't been able to find any more about it. But to get back to a second on on the tiny Broadway thing, um, the understanding was that Irwin had done the first ripcord pull, first free fall. Uh, he was the the father of of the modern parachuting. Sure. Well, it turned out that in 1914, Tiny Broadway was doing a demonstration for the army. Uh, the Army wanted to know prior to World War One if para- if pilots could use parachutes to save their lives. Sure, it saved a few balloon pilots, you know, that were uh, that were uh, spies, if you will. Um, they were, you know, shot shot down or whatever, and they bailed out with their with their parachutes, but they didn't know about it from airplanes. Well, so Tiny Broadwick did three jumps in San Diego, and my understanding is, and the story got convoluted, and I had it sorted out and i think i I hope i got it but the story originally was that she did the three jumps and on the fourth jump her static line hung and you know this that it's not possible that her static line hung up on the tail of the plane and left her dangling behind the plane (laughs) well you don't dangle from your static right i did the static line breaks the you know (laughs) and pulls your parachute open right there's a more serious problem than that well talking to her great grandchildren it turned her, her great grandson Ashton. It turned out that on the first three jumps, the static line was flapping in the 
static in the in the uh, slipstream, and she was worried that it was going to tear. They basically just you tied the pack shut with string, you know, like packing twine, <laughs> and the static line was wrapped around this this twine, and it would rip the the twine loose, and then the parachute would come out of the bag and it would open, and that was you know how it deployed. Well, she was concerned, or Martin was concerned that there was going to be a premature deployment. We know what would happen or could happen. Sure. You know, the, the best thing that could happen is she'd land where she didn't want to land. The worst hap- what happened is the parachute would wrap around the tail and bring everything to the ground. So um, she, the story goes, and she, I got it from good authority, her great-grandson, who showed me with his hands. He says she held out her, her little hands and said, I can cut the static line to this length and pull it with both hands <laughs> and, and open the parachute myself. Or he said, I can pull it with one hand. If need be, I can pull it with both. So on her fourth and final jump for the Army, she fell free from the airplane and somewhat immediately, I mean, within probably five seconds or so, deployed her parachute. And so that would have been the first, if you will, hate using the term first, but the first premeditated free fall. It wasn't technically a ripcord, even though it it did the function of a rip where it ripped sure. the back open. It was a cord and she pulled it open with her hands. So, you know, it was the first rudimentary rip cord. Sure. If we can say that. And then that still gives her when the credit of jumping a developed rig with a real rip cord. Hand sure. On the whole well, see, the, and, and these are the kind of stories that are so interesting to hear about, because again, a lot of us modern skydivers don't know a lot of this history. Now, what I want to know is because we could sit here and, and talk the history and stories forever and ever, but I want to know how do people find out how to get a hold of uh, your books, how to follow you on social media and how to start to absorb some more of this history outside of this podcast. Well, I've got, uh, I'm on Facebook constantly, so you can just Google Bob Lewis, put parachuting. Yeah, actually, if you just go to Google and put Bob Lewis skydiving or Bob Lewis parachuting behind it, and you'll basically find all my social media. Did I lose you? No, no, yeah. still here. Okay, well, I, I don't see you. But anyway, okay, so yeah, I'm... Uh, so if you just Google my name and put skydiving or parachuting after it, you'll find quite a few of the articles I've written. Um, you will see the, and I'm, my books are on Amazon uh, called Ladies of Skydiving, a Comprehensive History. And it's a five-part series. Obviously, only two are, are done. The first one is the early years, 1799-1942. And then the second volume covers the women warriors. That were the women who jumped into Europe. Um, as spies and clandestine operators uh, during World War II. Awesome. And then volume three will be coming out awesome. soon. But yeah, so I'm available on um, on all the social media platforms, uh, but I, I spend most of my time, I guess, on Facebook. I guess being an old guy, you know. Sure, sure. I mean, that, that seems to be our platform, right? <laughs> That's it. Well, Bob, I'll yeah. tell you what, and, and that's you know. Anyway, I'm trying trying to be young and hip, but I'm working. That's another neat thing about skydiving; it does keep you young and hip. Extremely, you know? always, yeah, always. 
I'll tell you what, I, I thank you so much for taking the time this morning to sit down and talk to me. I really want to continue to talk and and I want to get a lot more of the history of skydiving. We had talked pre-podcast about maybe having you uh, uh, give some tidbits and, and history lessons uh, throughout the podcast. So we'll talk more about that. And I really look forward to uh, being able to learn a lot more about all the stuff that you've uncovered. I'm looking forward to it too. Thanks for having me. Bob, take care of yourself. Blue skies. Well, there you have it. Another episode of the Lunatic Fringe Podcast brought to you as always by, well, wait, not as always, actually. Brought to you now by Gyro. Formerly known as NZ Aerosports, you'll head to gyro.com for their next level line of canopies. By Pussfoot, the Extreme Sports Collective. Head over to pussfoot.com to check it out. By Summit Parachute Systems, check out summitparachutesystems.com to talk to Jarrett Martin and the gang about kick-ass pilot rigs, rigging courses, and more. By Flyaway Indoor Skydiving, go to flyawaytn.com and check out all the cutting-edge stuff to come. By Pure Spectrum CBD, head to purespectrumcbd.com to check out their wide range of CBD products. And as for us, head to the lunaticfringepodcast.com to listen to any of the hundreds of episodes currently available, hit the link for our YouTube channel, pick up your copy of the Lunatic Fringe book or The Accidental Stripper, and get a sneak peek at upcoming guests. Once again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.